When you think of missionaries, you probably think of people who travel to far-flung foreign lands. It's true that we often don't think of people here in North America as missionaries, but if you read God's Word, you realize that every believer is called to be a missionary for Christ. This is Christ is the Answer, and I'm your host this morning, Robin Monks. Today, Pastor Randy Crozier digs deeper into what it means to be a missionary, and tackles issues around doctrine versus tradition that have often stifled the modern church. Here's Pastor Randy. I am going to, because I want to stay on track, I really want to try and be a little bit briefer than I typically am. So I'm going to try and be very rooted to my notes. I'm going to make that attempt and see if that will kind of expedite things this morning. You know, just to set the stage, I told you that uh, when I was casting about for the message, there would ultimately have been the conclusion of the eight things that every church should excel at, albeit somewhat removed from the last time I preached the last message, but just struggled for weeks and weeks that what the Lord did was, instead of giving me one message, in my heart, he broke it down to five messages. And um, so we began with the fact that every church needs a purpose. You know, that every church needs a dream or a vision of a preferable future. Then we moved on to the fact that every purpose needs a plan. There needs to be an actionable path that leads somehow to the realization or the fulfillment of that purpose. That nothing gets done in a willy-nilly or spontaneous kind of, you know, we'll just hope for the best sort of fashion. And we talked about the fact that the Bible is no stranger to planning. The Bible's no stranger to uh, a strategy that is executed under the guidance and supervision of the Holy Spirit. And I told you that the remaining three would be that all purposes and plans need missionaries, which is where we're going to be this morning. That all missionaries must rely on the Holy Spirit, that's next Sunday. And then finally, that all of the above require a decision. That as a congregation, we need to arrive at a point relative to them. Or absent a decision, none of it means anything. You know? Which is true, again, for most things in life. You know, decisions need to be made or taken. So, uh, insofar as it goes, and, and I want to review each week because I want us to build on this step by step, and so if you bear with me, beginning with the fact that every church needs a purpose, what is our purpose? Our purpose or our dream or the vision of a preferable future uh, that is in compliance ultimately with God's will and therefore rooted in the Word of God. You know, so, I've talked to you before about the fact that it's one thing to say, well, this is our vision or this is our dream. Uh, But if that vision or that dream is not firmly anchored in the revealed truth that God has given us, if it isn't situated firmly in the Word of God, then it's, uh, you know, uh, an an aberrant vision. It's wrong. It's moving in the wrong direction. So insofar as it goes, what is our vision uh, of a preferable future that's in compliance with God's will and that's anchored in His Word? And it's crowned by two overarching responsibilities. Number one, oh, they're not there. Uh, Number one is to love God, and number two, typically over there, would be to love people. That those two things are those responsibilities that are uppermost for us. They're the great commandment. You can't really argue with that. Jesus put it as plainly as he could possibly put it, that upon those two things hang all the law and the prophets, and so everything that's the will of God is ultimately projection 
either of loving him or of loving other people. And for us, that's our mission as a church. Our mission is to love God and it's to love people. And we intend to realize those two things or to execute on that mission by committing ourselves to or covenanting around, going back to where we were in that first message, every church needs a purpose. We intend to realize that mission or execute on it by covenanting around eight things. These eight things that you see situated around the room. Prayer, reliance on the Holy Spirit, faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, incarnational activity, which simply means to embody the gospel so that people see it. It's putting Jesus in shoe leather. It's being the body of Christ. Great church, which is characterized by the presence of God, compassionate congregational care, loving one another, responsible stewardship, and intentional discipleship. And the idea is that these are the, uh, and again, uh, are they the actionable, if you will, subsectors or subsections of our mission? You know, it's one thing to say, this is our mission. Love God, love people. Well, that's broad. And this goes, in a way, to the whole idea that, you know, in addition to having a purpose, you got to have a plan. That, you know, typically, in order for you to accomplish a purpose, to see a vision or a dream realized, you've got to break that vision down into pieces that you can take action on. So the actionable subsectors or sub-pieces of our mission is these eight things. These are the eight cylinders of the automobile, the engine, all of which have to be firing. Not that you can say one or the other is what we're going to emphasize, but in order to be a biblical New Testament church, we have to be faithful in all of these sectors. All of these cylinders have to be firing on. So, you know, that is our purpose. These things, these eight things, subsequent to loving God and loving people, our, our dream, our vision for the future. You know, on top of that, you could say there are core values. And our vision is to ultimately see those core values being realized in the life of the church, that we're, gonna, we're working toward a day when we see these. So then comes our plan. If, we, if that's our purpose, if that's our vision or our dream, then what's our plan? Our plan is to begin structuring, and then there are several you know, elements to this. Number one is to begin structuring or restructuring, if you will, our ministry activities, which is the use of our time, our talent, and our treasure. Whatever form those three things. When you talk about time, talent, and treasure, just about everything that we have at our disposal falls into one of those three categories. So, our, uh, our intention is, in relation to our plan, to restructure ourselves around uh, those core values, around the eight sectors of the vision, to see them uh, taking place. When I say restructure, you know, and I'll, I'll explain that momentarily, uh, but it's to begin, uh, first of all, praying about these things. Nothing, nothing, nothing is going to happen here, absent prayer. Please do not mistake Anything that I have to say relative to, to planning and strategy as something that is going to supplant or replace the fact that we have to pray. Every one of these things, in order for them to be realized in the life of this church, will not come to pass unless we are praying about them. So my challenge to you in relation to a plan to see our purpose realized is that you would begin diligently praying about every one of these things. That you would begin to pray, Lord, make us. And I mean very specifically. 
My challenge to you is to very specifically daily take up the cause of saying, Lord, make us a church that expresses compassionate congregational prayer. Lord, make us a church that faithfully proclaims the gospel. Do whatever you have to do to turn us into an evangelizing body on a radical level. Lord, make us a church where we have great church, where the presence of God is felt in every service because that's the transformative element of attending worship. God, make us responsible in our stewardship. God, help us to use every resource all the time, all the talent, and all the treasure that you give to us so that it is to the glory and progress of your kingdom. God, help us to be intentional, deliberate in our discipleship. Bring us to a place where we are in a very uh, conscious manner investing in the spiritual progress of everybody in the church, whether we've been serving the Lord for 10 days or 10 years or 50 years. And God, help us, Lord, to embody, incarnate your gospel message. Make us a praying church. I've already been there. And God, make us reliant on the Holy Spirit, that we would understand that this ark, this thing is not moving forward. So, you know, that's what uh, is part of the plan. God, get us praying about every single day. And I believe, and I think doctrinally at any rate, you believe too, that if we will begin deliberately praying about these things, we will see progress in all these areas. Something will begin to happen. You know, our plan uh, in relation to restructuring ourselves around these eight things means that for each of us, we need to pray about what sector. I like the word sector, so I'm going to call them sectors from now on, right? I didn't think piston really worked, but what sector do you want me laboring in? And this will go, uh, you know, this will, there's a meaningful attachment to the message this morning in relation to this. Every one of us, as we pray for these things to be realized, we also need to be praying, Lord, where, in which of these eight sectors do you want me to be a contributor? Based on my personality, my giftedness, your call on my life, because there is not one person in this room who knows Jesus Christ who is not under a mandate from Christ to be participating in the work of the advancement of the gospel. So where are you going to plug in? You know, what position uh, in our place in relation to all this, our part, are you going to play? Uh, and it also means, uh, and I, I mentioned this to you, that we're going to hold, and again, I couldn't find a better, a better word, but a, a, in relation to each and every one of these, a congress. And so this, this is why you need to pray about where you're going to plug in, because there's going to come a day over the next several months where I'm going to say, okay, we're going to hold on a given night, you know, a, a, a meeting, an assembly, uh, and everybody who feels that their responsibility is to play some part in, the, in compassionate congregational care, us looking after us, if that's your burden, you need to come to that meeting, and we're going to establish a team, build a team around that, and around that, and around that, and around that, and turn, and we're going to look for leadership, we're going to pray that God is going to raise up a person or persons, and then we're going to uh, get that group brainstorming about what they're going to do to make that thing a reality in our church, to do something. And if in the course of a year, uh, it's only one or two things, something is being done about every one of these things. And so we get the pistons all firing. That's part of the plan uh, for the future. 
and uh, then to rebuild the church, uh, 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 rebuild in the church a church-wide culture of evangelism. We need to be people who are uh, who are who are more passionate uh, than we've ever been before, or at least as passionate as you've been in the past. I would say more, right? Because more is always better in the kingdom of God, uh, and uh, uh, to implement. We talked about, and this again goes to plan, uh, an outreach strategy based on, around uh, incarnational activities, and that would be whatever that group's doing, and uh, six big Sundays and six big events, and I'm not going to go into that whole explanation again, but you know, we'll come to that uh, as well, and to couple the big Sundays with an outstanding Sunday experience. So every time we have a big Sunday... And it's kind of a low-key evangelism, evangelism initiative, and it's for you to invite people. And every time we have a big Sunday, it's a chance for us to, whether it's not a chance, it is our responsibility in relation to this plan to say that they are going to have an absolutely outstanding experience every time they come here. And what does an outstanding experience entail? What's involved in an outstanding experience? Well, uh, at the head of the list at the absolute head of the list, is that they experience the presence of God. If people experience the presence of God, their lives will be changed. If all they experience is you and me, well, they might be impacted to some degree, but they will never be eternally transformed. Is that our prayer is going to be that on those, every Sunday it should be our prayer, but on those Sundays, our earnest prayer, because you know, part of the whole process is that we invest in it, in prayer, deliberately leading up to each of these big Sundays. That this will be an occasion upon which the presence of Almighty God touches their hearts and touches uh, their lives. Uh, It's going to be about a deliberate reception and very deliberate welcome, ramped up. Ramped way up. I mean, on super steroids. Thank God for dear Helen who welcomes people at the back. But on those Sundays, we're going to inflate it big time. You know, for receiving people. And then uh, becoming, uh, at the same time, uh, more creative in our use of uh, connect cards. I'll talk to you more about that. might shock you some of the things. I'll not shock you. It won't shock you, but it might be a little bit different than, than you might be accustomed to. And becoming dynamic in our ministries, particularly our children's ministry. That's offered on those Sundays. Very important. And um, then, um, here's the thing that's going to get you, maybe. Who do we want? Who do we need to come to this church? Come on now. If the church is going to have a future, who do we need? We need young people. And here's where the rubber is going to meet the road for some of you. That means that we need generationally diverse worship. On those big Sundays, and the truth is, if we really want to build the church in that direction, every Sunday. Now what I mean by generationally diverse is that it's not about saying we're not going to sing a hymn or we're not going to sing an old chorus anymore, but we're going to start blending them together. I believe that it's God's will for churches to be diverse in their complexion. Old and young people should worship together. One of the sad things about some of the big booming churches is that their age is increasingly growing lower and lower and lower. There are some churches where the average age in the church is 30. 
Now, that may sound positive, but it's a way out of keeping with God's plan. God's intention is that people with spiritual experience rub shoulders with people with inexperience. And that's what the nature of a genuine church is. So we need diverse, generationally diverse worship, not generationally specific worship. So we're not talking about going all young and we can't remain all old. You know, so that's part uh, uh, of the plan. And then to faithfully and creatively follow up on visitors in order to secure second visits and third visits and to get people connected with our church family. The pattern for conversion these days is not believe, belong, become, or even believe, become, belong. The pattern for conversion these days is belong, then believe, and then, then become. People want to, that's the nature of, our society. They want to connect with you. And when they meet Jesus in you, then they find a way. Or through the influence of the Holy Spirit, or your influence, you know, as an instrument of the Holy Spirit, they find their way to Jesus Christ. So, a purpose and a plan. Every church needs a purpose. Every purpose needs a plan. And all plans and purposes need missionaries. I'd like to direct your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. And I want you to listen really, really carefully to this passage of Scripture. I want you to hear what God is speaking through the Apostle Paul. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. I have made myself a slave to everyone. To what end? To win as many as possible. I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. Why? So as to win those who don't have the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some people. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Lord, we ask you um, to bless your word. All by itself, it's powerful. All by itself, it has the capacity to transform our hearts. Indeed, there's nothing that I'm going to say that in and of itself has any power to bring transformation. It's your spirit and it's your word. And so we ask you, Lord, this morning, Lord, through the agency of the Spirit, through the agency of your Word, Lord, to bring a challenge into our hearts, to bring us transformation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses have an absolutely massive impact. When you begin to reflect on them, and, and it's so obvious when you start reading them and reflecting on them, uh, that it, it doesn't take a, a, a discourse, it doesn't take... You know, a, a great deal of interpretive contribution from somebody else to understand or to recognize how uh, potent these verses are and 
how potentially uncomfortable they are. Paul said to the Jews, I became like a Jew. So the Jews would come to Jesus. To those who are under the law, and there's a subtle distinction there of what that is, but we're not, that's not our point this morning. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law. Why? So that people under the law would come to Jesus. To people who were without the law, that is to say, Gentiles, I became as if I were a Gentile to the end that Gentiles would come to Jesus. And insofar as the weak are concerned, because I wanted the weak to come to Jesus, I became as if I were weak. Paul had a defining passion. A passion that so gripped and ruled his heart, that passion being to see people come to Jesus Christ, that he was willing to make all manner of personal transformation and subsequently a whole lot of sacrifice in order to see people come to Jesus Christ. I mean, before going a whole lot further, make it clear what Paul isn't saying in these verses. Mostly because I want you to understand what I'm not saying. Thing is, you know, when, when you say stuff, you hear things, this is human nature. I'm not saying it's the way you are, it's the way humans are in general, the way we all are. When we're listening to things, we pick up on the things that cause us alarm and we lose sight altogether of everything else. And under the circumstances, because that's our nature, we end up with a skewed interpretation of what we hear. And often, not, so I, I'm urging you to listen this morning to two things. Listen to what I am saying, and listen also to what I'm not saying. I guess that doesn't work, does it? Listen to what I do mean, and listen to what I don't mean. I'm going to tell you what I don't mean. I'm going to tell you right now what it is that Paul doesn't mean. What Paul is not saying in these verses. He is not saying that what he is trying to achieve is something that can be done by any means. You know the saying, the ends justifies the means? What that simply means, and I'm sure you, most of you understand, is that if you have a good objective, if the objective is worthy enough, you can do anything you want in order to get there. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is not touch teaching us that uh, the ends justify the means. That Paul is not teaching us that anything goes either. Now, there are some people who read that, that passage of Scripture, and they interpret it to mean that uh, Paul was the kind of guy who is willing to compromise and uh, to make any manner of changes or to tweak or to shape what he was doing in order to achieve the business or the goal of seeing souls come to Christ. Well, that is not what Paul is saying, because you have to read what Paul says in the wider context of his epistles. And one of the things that we know about Paul, beyond all shadow of the doubt, is that he would not tolerate any adjustment whatsoever to the fundamental nature of the message. You go to the book of Galatians, and Paul battled tooth and nail against this bunch of guys called Judaizers who came in and said, we're going to tweak it or we're going to adjust it. And Paul said, it isn't going to happen. He said, it isn't even a gospel. He said to them, I'm, so sh I'm, I'm stunned. He said, I'm shocked. So Paul was not a compromiser uh, when it came to um, the doctrinal fundaments of the message. Nor was Paul uh, the kind of guy who would fudge or make concessions when it came to God's timeless moral principles. 
You know, Paul lived an upright life and brought reproof and direction, correction in his various epistles at different times to people who did not do so. So insofar as it goes, it's very clear from the overall message or the, you know, what we see in the word that Paul was not the kind of guy who was going to compromise doctrinally. He wasn't the kind of guy who was going to compromise morally and Paul wasn't the kind of guy who was going to abandon, even for the very best of reasons, ethical behavior that was anchored in the Word of God. He was never going to live in the world in a manner or get engaged in or become participant to activities that violated the character and the nature of God Himself. So whatever Paul is saying in those verses, it means none of those things. So let me review it. Paul uh, is not the man who's going to compromise doctrinal fundaments. Paul is not a guy who's going to fudge or make concessions where God's timeless moral principles are concerned. And Paul is not a man who's going to abandon, even for the best of reasons or even for the shortest of time, ethical behavior that is shaped by and dictated to by the Word of God. So everything that I'm about to say, please keep that in mind. If you think at some point in the next few minutes that I'm suggesting that Paul would do any of those things, then one of two things is happening. Either you've misunderstood or I've miscommunicated. But we're not talking this morning about any change to the message. We're not talking this morning about any loosening of our morals. And we're not talking this morning about anything that has to do with a transformation in what is fundamentally a biblical way to live or biblical ethics uh, in the world. So, why then make those points? Well, here's the thing. Paul is not a guy who is telling us that anything at all goes. But here's the thing. You may be shocked to learn that more goes than you think goes. Paul does not believe anything goes in order to see people come to Christ. But from where we stand, we may be surprised to learn that more actually goes than we think goes. Uh, Paul is not the guy uh, who's saying that the ends justify any means at all, but there's probably more means for the propagation of the gospel than some of us imagine that there may be. So, see, it's kind of the point, really, of this whole passage, and in fact, a whole larger section of Corinthians. If you start in Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and you go to, all the way to Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul is uh, engaged in a discussion about neutral moral issues and how he handles them in the context of his ministry. Things that are not, like I said, Paul's not going to compromise his morals, Paul's not going to compromise his doctrine, and Paul's not going to compromise his ethics. But in this section, 8 1 through 11 1, he's going on at length this long discourse about all, all manner of issues that are morally neutral and how he handles them in the context of his ministry. And what he lets us know is that, well, there are certainly lines that he will not cross. There's no question about that. He won't cross doctrinal lines. He won't cross moral lines. He won't cross ethical lines. He won't violate God in any of these ways. But while there are certainly lines that he will not cross, what he's really telling us in this particular, this whole extended section, 8.1 to 11.1, but particularly in 1 Corinthians 9, and especially in 1 Corinthians 9, 
uh, 19 through 23, is that there are some lines that he will cross. They're not moral. They're not doctrinal. They're not ethical. But there are definitely lines that Paul says that in the interest of seeing people come to Jesus Christ, he is prepared and indeed does cross. For example, he crosses lines that have to do with personal freedoms and preferences. Paul's like everybody. Every single human being has personal freedoms and preferences. You sit in this room this morning, you have personal freedoms and you have personal preferences. Some of those preferences, let's talk about those, some of those preferences are anchored in the Word of God. Others are not. You may have held them for a long time. Others that you know may hold them. They may be dear to you, but that doesn't mean that everything that we all agree on or all the things that we cherish deeply are all rooted in the Word of God. For example, some of the music that we prefer. Now, there are lines there to cross too. But a broader way, some of us, we get this idea. I'll tell you what, I'll give you an example. I grew spiritually up at at, uh, faith school. Do you know that I got the impression at faith school, that there was only one kind of godly music. It was Southern Gospel. I really believed that. I believed that anything else, I mean, that's kind of what I was, I was taught, that anything else was somehow a departure from the righteousness of God. Well, that is patently ridiculous. Now, let me explain why. How long do you think Southern Gospel's been around? Not very long. What do you think they listened to before that? Clearly, music changes with time. Do you know that uh, at one time, Gregorian chanting was the way to go? How many of you would be into Gregorian chanting? But it was godly in its day. Anybody ever heard Gregorian chanting? It's kind of cool, but it's not the kind of thing you'd want to get too much of or an overdose of. Do you know that when um, D.L. Moody, have anybody here ever heard of D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody was one of the foremost evangelists in his time. He did Huge things for the progress and the advancement of the gospel prior to the birth of modern evangelicalism. And D.L. Moody traveled with a guy named Ira Sankey. Ira Sankey had a melodeon. Anybody know what a melodeon is? It's an itty-bitty keyboard. Uh, It's an itty-bitty organ, really. And so there's Ira Sankey, and he's playing Amazing Grace and, you know, know, all these old-timey kind of things. And they go to Scotland. Do you know what the Scotch said? They said of Ira Sankey's melodeon that was a, it's a little bit of Gaelic, a cust of devilish whistles, as far as they were concerned. That was just rank, raving, unbelievable liberalism. It was going to bring down the church. And they were ready to drive him out. And he's playing Amazing Grace. You know why? Because uh, they only sang the Psalter. That's what they sang. It's just, it's only, the, only the Psalms were righteous. So the point is, things change. And so, insofar as it goes, we need to be ready to be able, like Paul did, to say, well, some of our personal preferences that aren't necessarily anchored in the Word of God, although they're dear to our hearts. I've told you, you know, I I love the... Have you ever heard me sing a new chorus? I don't know one. I, I, I'm telling you that I love to sing them. I, had, my, I was blessed beyond measure here on Friday night with the young people. But none of them stick in my mind because I'm like a lot of you. I'm oriented to a different direction. The music of my soul is entirely different. But the thing is, Paul, and we have to emulate him in this, we have to be willing to say that in the interest of seeing people come to Jesus Christ, I am prepared to sacrifice my personal preferences, and that is the heart of what it means to be a missionary. What do missionaries do? i got to have to forget the notes because we're never going to get through that. What do missionaries do? Missionaries are people 
who leave behind the culture that they were born into, the culture that uh, gives them comfort, the culture that contributes hugely to their personal identity, the culture that uh, is the embodiment of all of their likes, their dislikes, and their preferences. And they say to themselves, in the interest of winning people to Jesus Christ, I'll leave all of that and I'm going to go into another culture. I'm going to step into that situation. And not only am I going to leave behind all of this that gives me comfort and is a source of my preferences, but I'm going to experience, on top of it, culture shock, which is the disorientation and the alienation and the sense of loss that you experience when you step into another culture. When you read, I'm, I'm all over the place this morning, so... I encourage you to do this. Go back and read those verses. And what Paul is describing is his own personal willingness to set aside any number of things that were part and parcel of his personal culture and personal preferences and the things that gave him a sense of comfort and a sense of security, and to say, you know what? I'm going to become this so this can happen. I'm going to become, uh, I mean, he's a Jew, right? That was Paul's personal comfort zone. Paul was most comfortable living the law. He'd done it all his life. Paul was most comfortable keeping kosher, the whole dietary thing. But Paul said, you know what? Although that's my zone, that's my comfort place, I'm prepared to live like a Gentile. I'll set all of those things aside and I'll eat Gentile food instead of kosher food in order to hear the gospel. Actually, you know, some of the things that Paul lists, he says, for one thing, he said, I'm prepared to, to uh, set aside my personal religious practices. He said, I'm also uh, prepared to set aside financial remuneration. He argues in the wider passage, if you're, if you're reading down through chapter 9, he says, you know what, I have a right like anybody else to expect to be remunerated or compensated for my efforts. But he says, you know what? I'm willing, if it means seeing somebody else come to Jesus Christ, to suffer the discomfort of not getting paid in order to see somebody. Now, Paul did sometimes get paid. There are places where he talks about receiving offerings, and he's more than willing to do it. But he's also uh, prepared to say, well, you know, if it's, it's going to make the gospel go forward, you know, I'll, I'll do without. And there are any number of these things that Paul says, I'll do without. Uh, if, if it means seeing people come to Jesus Christ. You know that in the book of Romans, you know, you know, Paul went so far as to say, and this is how dedicated he was, how prepared he was to sacrifice in order to see people come to Jesus Christ. He writes to the Romans and he says, if it were possible that Israel would come to Christ, I would sacrifice or forfeit my own salvation. Yeah. And all these things are at the heart of what it means to be a missionary. So... What has all that got to do with all of this that we're talking about? Well, here's the thing. I am asking you to become missionaries, to embrace a missionary outlook. I asked you before who it is, who is it that we need to reach if we're going to see this church flourish, if we're going to preserve and protect and perpetuate your legacy, which is a grand legacy, a wonderful legacy. But who do we have to reach to make sure that 10 or 15 years from now, this church hasn't died of old age? We've got to reach young people. And that means that we have to be willing to become missionaries. The thing is that most churches aren't. Most churches are not willing 
to embrace them. I told you before that there are 80 to 90 percent of all churches in North America that are dying churches. They're in decline. And that most of those churches will never turn that around. And I talked to you before about why, you know, that's the case, some reasons. But one of those reasons is that most of those churches will not embrace a missionary attitude. Instead, what they hold on to is an us attitude. We want our music. You know, we want our dress code. We want, and the list goes on and on. But understand something. Apart from some, some extreme expressions in both of those cases, and there are extreme expressions, those are not issues that are anchored in the Word of God. I'll ask you a question. What do you think Paul wore to preach in? Do you suppose he went around with a change of clothes? I don't think so. He preached in what he was wearing. I'm not arguing to be you know, difficult or problematic. I want to make you see that there are things that we have to be willing to entertain and change. Understanding that those changes don't represent a compromise of what's scriptural. They represent a compromise of what's become traditional. We want to see young people come to Jesus Christ. Then we need to be willing to say that we're going to have generationally diverse music. And the thing is, if you're missionaries, here's the, here's the kicker about music. If you're missionaries, it isn't just about tolerating those songs. It's about worshiping to them. I know it's culturally difficult, but missionaries do culturally difficult things. You know, they learn to sing in different languages. They learn to sing different kinds of music. They learned all kinds. When, when, when we're talking about cross-cultural missionaries, well, the truth is we are cross-cultural. Foreign missionaries. We have to be willing to say, Lord, I am going to take a missionary attitude to music. I'm going to take a missionary attitude. You can, listen, if, if you feel comfortable, if you feel best before the Lord, dressed with, you know, a suit and tie, or a, then go ahead. But we have to be ready to welcome other people who do not see it that way, who make no connection whatsoever between a tie and God. You know, or a certain kind of dress and God. I'm talking to you about the things that, that are imperative to where we're going to be in the future. You know, other things that, that really, for example, you know, uh, in terms of being missionaries. And here's another thing that we, uh, think of Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah shows up and he's telling Israel about the vision that God has given them. And the response is that they all say, yeah, we're in. And then as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you discover that they're all on the wall. Almost all of them. Overwhelming majority of the people. They set their hand to the work. They all get on the wall. So the thing about missionaries is that in spite of their their frailties and encumbrances and all the things that challenge them, they come at the business of preaching the gospel and they get on the wall even when being on the wall is hard. So what do I mean by that? We Here's the thing. If we're going to see the Lord do something in the future, we all have to be missionaries to the extent that we all have to be willing to get on the wall. Now I know that many, 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 many of you here spent years on the wall. You did. You spent years teaching Sunday school, and you spent years participating in any number of the ministries of this church. And you're, you're not as young as you used to be. But my challenge to you is this. If we're going to see the church flourish, I need one more burst of energy from you. I need you to become willing to say that you're going to get on the wall. You're going to strap that sword onto your side, and you're going to start laying bricks. That's what missionaries do. 
And if we don't take up the challenge, if we don't rise to the occasion, then you know, we're, you know, we need all of these. And it goes on and on of things that we have to be prepared to do because we see ourselves as missionaries. So I'm asking you to make a choice. Not, not this morning. I guess what I'm asking you this morning is to pray about it. Because we're coming to that, that fifth. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, that all of this is meaningless, absent the power of the Holy Spirit. But then number five is that all of the above need a decision. And I'm going to ask you to make a choice. I've told you before that I will never force you. Not that I really could anyway, but I will never attempt to force you down a path. There's nothing, that pr- nothing productive comes from that. Church is split and there's all kinds of violence, emotional and spiritual violence that goes on. And, and it's just you know mayhem and destruction. What I'm asking you to do is recognize the situation that we're in. Recognize what's coming down the road if nothing changes. And then make decisions. Make a decision about what we're going to be doing for the future, including are you going to become a missionary? And are you going to make the kinds of sacrifices and surrender the preferences and make the hard calls and deal with some of the alienation? I'll tell you what, I, I am under no illusion that for some of you, if we start singing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, I know maybe you sing that one. I See, that's the one I know because it's connected with Amazing Grace. But if we start some of, singing some of these songs, and I promise you, we're going to be discreet in our choices. We're not going to just go out there. And, but if we start singing some of these songs, some of you are going to feel alienation. Some of you are going to feel disorientation. That's what happens to missionaries. So I'm asking you, are you willing to become missionaries? Lord, something happened somewhere along the way in the church that we began to think of the other guy as a missionary. We began to think of uh, people who go off to foreign fields as missionaries. We expected them to make hard choices and sacrifices and suffer disorientation and alienation and all of these things. But the truth is, the case has always been that we're all supposed to be missionaries. And when we sing, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, instead of in our mind's eye casting it across the sea, help us to understand, Lord, that this is our mission field. And on this field, we need to function as missionaries. We need to pay the price that missionaries pay. We need to interact with cultures, generational cultures, that we're not familiar with or even comfortable with. Lord, help us. Challenge us. Lord, I, my words are so inadequate. My delivery of this message was appalling in many ways. And, but Your Word is perfect. And Lord, would You take each one of us home and, and Lord, help call, just prompt every one of our hearts to pick up those verses that 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, and just begin to meditate on them and let the word begin to challenge us. Lord, make us a church full of missionaries. And when we become a church full of missionaries, then Lord, oh Lord, oh my goodness, what could happen? Lord, work in our hearts, do something.
We want to go in the direction you want us to go. We want to be what you want us to be. We want to do or what you want us to do. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Christ is the Answer. Hopefully, after listening today, you have a better sense of what it means to be a missionary for God. Many of our episodes have to be edited to meet the 30-minute confines of radio, but we make longer versions of these sermons available on our podcast. To listen to the extended sermons and have new episodes delivered automatically to your phone or tablet every week for free, visit our website at cviewfullgospel.com. Christ is the Answer is a production of the Seaview Full Gospel Church in beautiful Back Bay, New Brunswick. If you live in the area and aren't currently attending church, we'd love to have you. Service times are on our website or can be found by calling 506-755-3592. Until next week, remember, Christ is the answer.